0: This is the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates Radio program. I am your host, Dennis Tubergen. Glad you decided to listen in this week. Hey, joining me on today's program in segments two and three is returning guest, Mr. Martin Jeftovic. Mark is the publisher of the Crypto Capitalist Letter. I'm going to uh, chat with Mark about his take as to the worldwide move away from the dollar. And how it plays out in his view, and what you might think about doing to uh, put yourself in a position to prosper from such a move. It is still the month of April, which means the April 2023 special report is still available. If you have not yet requested it, go to requestyourreport.com and let me know where to mail the report, and I will mail it to you. It is titled Five Forecasts for the Economy and Investing Markets. In the report, I interview four experts on where the economy and investing markets go. I give you my take as well. And when you request the report, by forecast for the Economy and Investing Markets, I'll also be glad to send you a copy of my Revenue Sourcing book. The Revenue Sourcing book contains a retirement planning strategy for today's economy. I'll also send you a copy of the Social Security Maximization book. So a big box of information is yours for free and without any future obligation. All you need to do is visit the website, requestyourreport.com. So the question, of course, is where do we go from here, economically speaking, and where do investing markets go from here? And back in 2014, when I wrote the book, New Retirement Rules, I talked about the fact that we would likely see inflation followed by deflation. Now, all one needs to do is study history, and you know that this cycle has repeated itself time and time again uh, throughout history. Uh, Whenever currency is created, it's to mask the symptoms of debt, but eventually, debt kicks in, the deflation kicks in as a result of excess debt, and when we see deflation, we see the prices of financial assets fall. So in this segment, I want to talk a little bit about where we are in that cycle presently. And when I sat down to write the May You May Not Know report, I did some research as to where debt levels are now compared to different points in the past. Now, this is an important analysis because debt consumes future production. And I want to explain what I mean by that. The U.S. economy is dependent upon consumer spending. Consumer spending comprises about 70% of the United States gross domestic product or economic output. So the economic health of the United States is dependent upon you and I going out and spending money. At least 70% of gross domestic product is dependent upon you and I going out and consuming. Now, as debt levels go up, and we'll just look at debt levels at a household level. If you take on some debt and you have to now make payments to service that debt, you have to make principal and interest payments, say you buy a new car, that means that you've got less discretionary income in the future as a result of taking on that debt. Now, the same thing works collectively when you look at the entire economy. The more debt that exists in the private sector, the more of tomorrow's production that is consumed today, and the less discretionary income a consumer or consumers as a group have to spend. Now, we've had not only high debt levels, but inflation is also consuming a lot of this discretionary income, and the economy is starting to feel it. So the question is, is deflation now beginning? Well, if you take a look at stock performance last year, you'd have to say so. If you take a look at real estate now slowing, particularly commercial real estate, you'd have to say that that is the case. But when you go back and compare private sector debt levels today to the level of private sector debt that existed in 1929 at the onset of the Great Depression, There are some very, very strong similarities. Now, I'm not bringing this up to be an alarmist. I'm bringing this up to make you aware of the level of debt that exists and how it's likely to impact the economy moving ahead. Now, if you go back to 1929 and look at U.S. gross domestic product, which is really economic output, it's the total of all goods and services uh, that the U.S. economy produces, GDP in 1929 was $105 billion. A billion dollars in 1929 was a lot different than a billion dollars in 2023. Now, total private sector debt levels at that time were about $150 billion. So $150 billion in private sector debt divided by $105 billion of economic output And we've got a private sector debt to GDP ratio of about 145%. So in other words, private sector debt was between 1.4 and 1.5 times economic output. Now, as I've already stated in this segment, debt is a drag on economic growth. Debt requires that payments be made out of current production, which leaves you less current production to spend today. And certainly, when one looks at what happened to economic output in the United States, well, in 1929, gross domestic product was $105 billion. By 1933, gross domestic product fell to $57 billion, while private sector debt was still at about $120 billion. So at the height of the Great Depression, we saw a debt-to-GDP ratio of more than two to one. Now, let's compare that to where we find ourselves today. Today, private sector debt levels stand at about 154% of economic output. So private sector debt levels measured as a percentage of the economy are greater today than they were at the onset of the Great Depression. And We have about a $25 trillion economy. So we have a great deal of similarity, but there are also some differences. See, in 1929, the U.S. government was not fundamentally insolvent. I would argue that that is the case today. U.S. government debt in 1929 was $17 billion. Now, again, just to remind you, in 1929, economic output, it was $105 billion. So U.S. government debt was about 16% of economic output. If we were to phrase that another way, using an analogy with which many of you may be familiar, there was a lot of room on the credit card for the government to implement programs to attempt to alleviate the painful economic system, system symptoms rather that existed as a result of the depression. So National debt today stands at about 32 trillion, probably a little bit higher than that because we now are at again the debt ceiling impasse and that whole drama is now playing out. And as I mentioned, gross domestic product is about 25 trillion. So that's a government debt to gross domestic product ratio of about 130%. So while private sector debt levels today are slightly higher, then at the onset of the Great Depression, government debt is significantly higher. Government debt is 130% of economic output versus 16% in 1929. So moving ahead, given the apparent commitment to make bank depositors whole, and I believe, as I've said here on the program, that we will see more bank failures, Banks have debt as assets, so when debt levels get too high to pay, banks fail. So I expect we'll see more bank failures moving ahead, and the Fed now has made an apparent commitment to make all depositors whole, and should they continue with that particular policy, we will likely see more currency creation, despite what the Fed is saying now to the contrary. So what will be the end result? Well, I think the end result of this will be inflation in the things that we buy and falling asset prices in the things we own. So should this policy play out, I think we will likely see higher gas prices, higher grocery prices. And I think we will see lower stock prices and lower real estate prices. I think we're setting ourselves up for a stagflationary outcome. And I believe the Fed will have One of two choices. Both of these choices are bad. One, the Fed will attempt to stimulate the economy. And to do that, they'll create more currency. Or two, they will say we need to preserve the purchasing power of the dollar. And if we have a recession, then so be it. So what will they do? Well, I happen to believe that you're going to see the Fed attempt to stimulate the economy, and that will mean more currency creation. There are analysts that I've interviewed on the program that have a different, different opinion. So the bottom line is this. You need to use a planning strategy that will allow you to navigate a deflationary environment and an inflationary environment, and when the two are combined, a stagflationary environment. So to that end, I'd like to invite you to get the April special report. The April special report is yours along with a revenue sourcing book that contains a planning strategy for such an environment. All you need to do to get the report and the book is visit requestyourreport.com. I'll be back after these words with my special guest, Mr. Mark Jeftovic. Welcome back to RLA Radio. I'm your host Dennis Tubergen. Joining me on today's program is returning guest Mr. Mark Jeftovic. Mark is the publisher of the Crypto Capitalist Letter. Um, you can get a special rate on the Crypto Capitalist Letter, or check it out by visiting the CryptoCapitalist.com/tubergen. T-U-B-B-E-R-G-E-N, and I'll give that site again. Uh, later on in the interview so mark welcome back to the program hey dennis thanks for having me it's always nice to talk to you so mark uh let's just talk a bit about the crypto capitalist letter uh what motivated you to uh to, to to found the publication um What what uh, what what's really the uh, motivation behind uh, Mark uh, publishing the Crypto Capitalist letter, and what can listeners and 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 readers hope to learn? Sure. Well, I've always liked the information
1: publishing business, especially in the financial sector. I've been reading newsletters like the Daily Reckoning and uh, Early to Rise since the late '90s, and I always just loved getting. Quality information outside the mainstream, sort of contrarian, not towing the line of just the prevailing orthodoxy, because I found that that's been wrong for the past bunch of decades. And like a lot of people under lockdowns, I just started something on the side to keep my sanity. And I started writing about uh, Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies and a lot of these crypto stocks that I were finding that were trading at really low multiples, even though cryptos at the time were heading to all time highs. And I just thought that this is a real mismatch in an asymmetric trade. And I started writing some reports on it and I started assembling my newsletter. And it just kind of took on a life of its own. So it's become, you know, a, 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 an ongoing concern. We started our third year uh, last month and it. Uh, it's been going
0: great. So, Mark, when you were uh, providing that explanation to the listeners, you used the term crypto stock. And uh, it's my guess that there are many listeners that might be a bit confused by that term. Could you define it, please? Sure. So those are
1: publicly traded equities whose core business is involved in either the Bitcoin space or the crypto space. And I do differentiate now because uh, we are seeing the emergence of a delineation between Bitcoin and the rest of crypto. That's something that played out over the crypto winter, like the bear market of the last year and changed. But these are companies like Bitcoin miners that are publicly traded and all they do is mine Bitcoin. There are publicly traded crypto yield farming companies that just do things like hold a basket of cryptocurrencies and earn their uh, their income from running from staking those cryptos or from from providing um, you know lending activities on those cryptos and then there's there's even, Publicly traded crypto exchanges now like Coinbase is sort of the, the the 800 pound gorilla in the space. So this sector has become a very real sector here in Canada. We even have like straight ETFs on Bitcoin, Ethereum and a few other cryptos in the States. There is only futures ETFs. That's an ongoing battle. But I think a, a Bitcoin ETF is just a matter of time in the U.S., and so these this is an entire sector that's being represented in the stock market and the equities markets and on etfs and mutual funds and it's a real it's a real asset class that's not going anywhere soon except (laughs) uh
0: so mark there's a a lot of talk and here on the program we've discussed it uh with, with other guests in the past that uh there seems to be this agenda worldwide by central banks to issue their own digital currencies. They're called central bank issued digital currencies. Uh, so, assuming that, that banks continue to, to to move along those lines, and you know the the, the Fed uh, has stated that's a, a goal. Um, it, it seems that the the politicians and policymakers are probably going to do what they can to attack the private cryptocurrencies because they're competition. So what's your take on the viability of central bank issued digital currencies and how does that affect the private cryptocurrency uh, world moving ahead?
1: Sure. Well, this is a, a major theme in the newsletter. We have a section every month in the month end review on central bank digital currencies. We keep a very close eye on this. And for one, we've noticed that pretty well. Every cryptocurrency project that has done a public launch has flopped. There has not been widespread public acceptance of these cryptocurrencies. Two, there's still a long way off in the US, in Canada, in most G7 or G20 nations. They're still in the planning phases, still issuing white papers and, and jockeying for different policies. This is not something we're going to wake up tomorrow and there's suddenly a CBDC that's taken over the entire banking system. Uh, And and for that reason, I actually think that they will end up deploying CBDCs on some kind of crypto that already exists. And I've written about this at length as well um, over on my bomb thrower blog, which is a free blog. Anyone can read that. And my guess is it's going to be Ethereum is my front runner for the base layer, the dial tone for central bank digital currencies. And the reason I think this is because the global financial system is imploding, unraveling. It's kind of blowing apart at a rate faster than the world's central banks can actually design and develop and implement the CBDC from the ground up will they supplant uh, these private decentralized uh, uh, cryptocurrencies and bitcoin not a chance it's just not going to happen because uh, the incentive structure is such that the central bank digital currencies are going to re- evolve into de facto social credit systems, whether they're designed that way or not. And private wealth is simply not going to store itself inside a system where that wealth is outside of their control, like fiduciaries and allocators. They're just not going to take their retained earnings and their savings and their their, um, endowments and put them into something where somebody else can type a keyboard and just make it vaporize. It's just not going to happen. So I think both of these systems are going to coexist in parallel. I call this scenario the great bifurcation, um, almost like a monetary apartheid, because CBDCs are gonna be the rails for things like universal basic income. They're gonna, as I say, morph into social credit systems. And, you know, let's face it, a lot of people, the way they went along with everything under under the COVID years, they're they're going to like it. They're going to say, hey, this is great. I get free money on my phone every month. I just have to spend it by the end of the month or it goes away and I get extra points if I lower my carbon footprint. And, and, and some of these people, their lives are going to be gamified and dictated by the confines of these CBDC systems, and they're going to like it. But, you know, a meaningful chunk of wealth and capital in the world is not going to go inside those systems. They're going to build up outside those systems, and and that's going to be hard assets. It's going to be things, you know, real assets like real estate, gold, silver, money, income-producing businesses, and Bitcoin, and to a other extent, cryptocurrencies in general. And so I call that, you know, the great bifurcation. There's going to be this divide. And a lot of the capital in the crypto world is has is going to have no intention of ever going back into fiat world. And the CBDCs are really just this this runway to extend the fiat system by a couple of decades and and try and maintain as much control as possible over as large a chunk of the population as possible. But it's not going to it's not going to neutralize Bitcoin and cryptos. It's if anything, it's going to incentivize their adaptation.
0: Well, if you're just joining us, letter. I'm chatting today with Mr. Mark Jeftovic. Mark is the publisher of the Crypto Capitalist Letter. Uh, for a special rate, you can go to com slash Tubergen, T-U-B-B-E-R-G-E-N. Uh, Mark, we have just about two and a half minutes left in this segment. Um, you had mentioned, uh, I think the, the phrase you used was the global financial system is imploding. Well, we certainly saw uh, you know, the beginnings of that. Uh, I, I share your view, incidentally. With uh, Silicon uh, Silicon Valley Bank, Signature Bank, Credit Suisse, what uh, we're starting to see cracks in the uh, in the banking system. Uh, is it your view that we're just getting started here, and there's more to come? Yeah, we're in the early innings here,
1: and uh, my latest issue I put out like has a cra- a graphic of. Wily coyote, sort of in those moments after he goes off the cliff and he hasn't looked down yet, and uh, he, he knows that gravity is about to take over, and or he's about to find out, and down he goes. I think we're in that kind of an awkward pause in this, you know, slow motion banking crisis. What was telling was how fast that banking crisis unraveled um, when it when it started. We weren't measuring it in weeks and months the way we were, to, let's say, Cyprus back in 2013 or the, the euro crisis played out over a year. This, this happened at internet time and it played out over 72 hours and suddenly you saw all kinds of frantic actions by the Fed. And central banks to shore things up. Uh, the taper got thrown out the window in 48 hours. They added back at, at like 75 percent of the taper in, in in hours, and suddenly all the FDIC deposits were insured. Uh, we're going to be covered. Covered with what? With printed money, of course. And so it, it just happened with blinding speed. We're in this. We're levitating right now before the next round kicks in because every. Every dose of medicine for this this financial system that's imploding is just making the financial system more likely to implode. It's making it sicker. So that's that's where we are, and who knows where the next where the next systemic shock is going to come from?
0: Well, my guest today is Mr. Mark Jeftovic. You can subscribe to his Crypto Capitalist letter or learn more at the CryptoCapitalist.com/tubergen. I will continue my conversation with Mark when RLA Radio returns. Stay with us. Welcome back to RLA Radio. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. I have the pleasure of chatting once again on today's program with returning guest, Mr. Mark Jeftovic. Uh, Mark's a very bright analyst uh, in the crypto space. Uh, he publishes the Crypto Capitalist Letter. You can learn more about that letter at thecryptocapitalist.com forward slash Tubergen, T-U-B-B-E-R-G-E-N. You can also get a special rate if you wish to subscribe. Uh, Mark, let's just jump back in. Uh, y- you know, when, you, when we talked about uh, cryptos and you talked about gold and you talked about hard assets, explain to the listeners um, why Bitcoin is as good a choice to, to store some wealth as gold, silver or real estate uh, assets that would be, at least from uh, most people's perspectives, be more tangible.
1: Well, what makes Bitcoin tangible is actually what you hear it criticized for the most, and that is the proof of work mining algorithm to mine Bitcoin. It was completely ingenious when the author, whoever he or she or they were back in 2008, came up with this algorithm because it takes energy to mine Bitcoin, and the more um, adoption, Bitcoin gains. The more market uptake it gets, the more energy it takes to mine this Bitcoin. So Bitcoin, the frequent opposition you hear about this is, oh, it's backed by nothing. No, actually, a U.S. dollar is backed by nothing because you literally create trillions of them from keystrokes on the on the computer. Bitcoin takes more and more energy to produce a Bitcoin. Because it's backed by that energy input and it's backed by the math that's used to solve the equations to to append the block. And on top of that, it is capped at 21 million bitcoins. Well, there will only ever be 21 million. To put that into a little bit of perspective, there's, give or take, depending on what numbers you use, there's something like um, 65 millionaires in the world. So if every millionaire decided they wanted one Bitcoin, they're not, there's not enough Bitcoin to go around for every millionaire in the world to get it. So it's going to subdivide down. Bitcoins can be divided into 100 million subunits, uh, each one called a Satoshi after the creator. And the other objection you hear about it is, well, you can't have a currency or a money that you can't expand, that you can't you know, keep pace with inflation that can't be inflated. But that's actually false. Um, An inflationary monetary system is more of an aberration than the norm. Uh, We've been in this fiat currency experiment for 50 years, and there's been some books written that show exactly how a deflationary, uh, inelastic currency like gold, like silver, like Bitcoin, and I say Bitcoin, not the others, Um, how they can be uh, a functioning monetary system. Imagine a world where your currency, your savings, the money that you manage to get off the table and put aside, it actually increases in purchasing power over time instead of decreasing and decaying. It's a whole different mindset. It takes a while to wrap your head around it, but once you do, it just explodes in your brain.
0: So, Mark, when when, uh, you look at what's going on with fiat currencies, in particular the U.S. dollar, uh, the move away from the U.S. dollar around the globe, from my perspective, seems to be accelerating. You've got China and Brazil now that have their own uh, trade agreement bypassing the dollar. Uh, The BRICS countries have stated it is their goal to have a currency backed by a commodity or something tangible. There are rumors it might even be gold. They want to have that for... Uh, trade amongst those countries. You've got Mexico and France that have have expressed interest in joining BRICS, Saudi Arabia even. Um, Are the dollars days numbered as a reserve currency? And how do you see this playing out? Yeah, they are. They are numbered. And uh, the, the recurring theme
1: since I started this newsletter three years ago, I mean, I've been covering Bitcoin since 2013, but since the newsletter launched, I've written more than once that these events are playing out faster than I thought. A lot of this stuff I would predict when I started writing the letter in my original thesis, which is called the Crypto Capitalist Manifesto. I said, you know, this stuff is going to take 5, 10, 20 years to play out. And 18 months later, we've ticked some of the boxes of these things that I thought would take years or decades. So dedollarization dollarization used to be something we were prognosticating in the newsletter. We said it was coming, and it's turned into something we are now tracking in the newsletter. It is happening. It is happening now. I have no idea how long the U.S. dollar will remain the world reserve currency, but it is coming unraveled at alarming speed even faster than I thought it would. Um, you know, you're still going to be able – these everything – that is entrenched has a long tail. So even if suddenly next week the U.S. dollar is declared, you know, no longer the world reserve currency, you're still going to be able to spend U.S. dollars probably in almost every country in the world. But you're going to have to spend a lot more of them to get what you used to get. So uh, it's it's happening. It's real. It's not a. It's not you know some airy fairy theory. We are. We are witnessing it in real time because that's the times we live in now is everything is accelerating and everything is moving faster than than everyone can track.
0: You know, I think uh Mark, it was Hemingway that said you 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 go bankrupt slowly then suddenly or something to that effect. <laughs> yeah, gradually um, and, then suddenly, yeah. <laughs> gradually then suddenly. Uh so it's like uh, it seems like that's the case with uh, you know the U.S. dollar. When when you're when you're taking a look at uh, how this could play out, the Fed now seems like they have said we're going to insure all bank deposits. Uh, my research says there's about eleven trillion dollars of insured bank deposits, and the Deposit Insurance Reserve Fund has less than two hundred billion. It seems like you know that, that we could see a lot of currency creation moving ahead, and that could really mean that we move from gradually to suddenly to, to, to correctly quote Hemingway.
1: Yeah, for sure. And I did a similar analysis on the Canadian Deposit Insurance Corporation back in 2008, 2009 during the financial crisis. Uh, and I found the same numbers. Like if you look at the total uh, insured bank deposits, it was one number. I can't remember exactly what it was. You Look at the the uh, financial resources of the deposit insurance corporation, whether it's FDIC or CDIC up here, it's it's like a tenth, or I think it was three percent, is what I found. And now, if you're going to insure all the deposits, not just the ones up to the statutory limit, uh, that 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 amount of funding that these corporations have, the deposit corporations have to cover these losses, it, it's infinitesimal. So. Um, There's a couple of Bitcoiners up here in Canada that run a podcast called the Canadian Bitcoiners Podcast, and they always like to say the money comes from somewhere or it comes from nowhere. So if the money to cover all these deposits comes from somewhere, that means everyone's got to pay more taxes. And you're in an environment where telling everyone they have to pay more taxes to bail out banks is a hard sell. So if it doesn't come from somewhere, it's got to come from nowhere, which means the money printer goes burr again. And that is the most likely course of action. And we're already seeing that. And that's what's going to happen. So these fiat currencies are going to print their way to high heaven. And it's going to be a pretty nasty uh, inflationary dynamic.
0: You know, when you uh, visit your website, uh, Mark, which I did prior to this interview, you um, You talk about the fact that there's going to be this great reset and you're offering strategies to help people stay on the right side of this. Uh, As we close this segment, can you talk a little bit in as much detail as as you can and to the extent you're comfortable about, you know, how will our average listener that aspires to a comfortable, stress-free retirement, how will they stay on the right side of this great reset and, and what does it look like? Uh,
1: My answer to that usually surprises a lot of people because they think I'm going to tell them to buy gold, and buy Bitcoin, and I'm going to tell you to do that. You should. I'm going to guess a lot of your listeners probably already are invested in gold, maybe less so in Bitcoin. I'd say start start a dollar cost average on Bitcoin, even if it's just going to the ATM. Once a week and putting 10 bucks in and just as long as you custody it in your own wallet. But my main answer, the surprising part of the answer is I tell them to get into business, either like a side hustle or um, start a business in your core competency or buy one that already exists. And you start a business that you can scale over time to diversify your reliance on the economic system, and then in that business you start accepting Bitcoin and cryptos as a payment method, and then you just stack those Bitcoin and cryptos. And that's my my that's the mantra, that's the drum I've been pounding. It's like uh, the sovereign individual thesis. I don't know if your 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 listeners have read that book, but it's the holy writ. Of the Bitcoin space, it was written 20 years ago, 25 years ago, uncanny prescience to what the world we're living in today. And that's that's
0: the advice and the guidance that I'm trying to steer my readers through. Well, my guest on today's program has been Mr. Martin Jeftovic. He is the publisher of the Crypto Capitalist Letter. Uh, there is a special rate if you'd like to subscribe at the CryptoCapitalist.com. Forward slash Tubergen T U B B E R G E N. You can also learn more about the publication there as well. Uh, Mark, always a pleasure to catch up with you. Uh, really appreciate your perspective and your hard work, and I'd love to have you back down the road. Oh, always, always eager to come on, Dennis. I, I love talking to you. We will return after these words. This is the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates Radio program. I'm Dennis Kuberg and your host. Thanks again to Mr. Mark Jeftovic for joining me on today's program. It is April, so available to you is the April 2023 special report. The special report is titled Five Forecasts for the Economy and Investing Markets. I'll be glad to send you a complimentary copy of this report that contains forecasts from four experts as well as uh, some insights from me as well, tying all these opinions together, I think you'll find it to be valuable. Go to requestareport.com. I'll be glad to send you a copy. When you do request that report, I'll also be sending you a copy of the revenue sourcing book that contains a retirement planning strategy for today's economy. You'll also get a copy of the little black book on social security maximization. So all that information for free, We'll be glad to send it to you. Just go to requestyourreport.com. Let me know where to send it, and we will be glad to get it out in the mail to you. You know, in the first segment, I talked about the fact that private sector debt levels in the economy now mirror, as a percentage of economic output, the private sector debt levels that existed in 1929. I also pointed out there was one difference between now and 1929, and that is the level of government debt that exists. Government debt is currently about 130% of the economy. In 1929, it was about 16% of the economy. So in 1929, to be candid, the government was not broke. So I believe we're going to see this cycle of inflation followed by deflation, but we will likely see some of each as we transition. I believe we're going to see a stagflationary environment that will result in higher prices on the things we buy and lower asset prices on the things we own. And it's starting to seem that we're seeing some cracks in the commercial real estate market. Patrick Carroll, who is the CEO of the real estate investing firm Carroll, was recently interviewed by CNBC, and he said there are some areas of the commercial real estate market that could remain intact, such as multifamily housing, but he suggested that offices and hotels could be, quote, destroyed, end quote, as banks now tighten credit. They're not as eager to loan money. And Mr. Carroll says it's going to be ugly. It's going to be at least as bad as 2008 or 2009, he said. Now, one of the issues, Mr. Carroll states, is that commercial mortgage debt held by banks, as it now matures and needs to be refinanced, the conditions in the lending market are going to be much tougher. He also added that about 80% of outstanding commercial property debt is held by small and medium-sized banks. He suggested that sellers have not yet realized how much their properties have lost in value. He said they're not yet willing to dump their properties at bargain prices because they haven't yet felt enough pain. But he suggested they're going to start feeling the pain, and he said, quote, These lenders are screwed. He said there will be $1.5 trillion in commercial real estate debt that will come due in the next three years, and that'll have to be either refinanced or renegotiated. And that will likely lead to more trouble in the banking sector. And of course, the, the last three years have brought many companies to the realization that their workers don't need to be employed at a central office location. So one of the things contributing to the commercial real estate crisis is the fact that many companies now are closing down their office space because they don't need it. And secondly, the fact that the Fed is increasing interest rates is making it a lot more difficult to maintain uh, a, a bubble in asset prices because, as we have discussed in the past year on the program, you cannot have an asset price bubble unless you have easy credit. Now, the Epic Times recently ran an article that dug into this, and the article was written by a Canadian citizen who spent some time working on Canada's version of Wall Street, which is located in Toronto at the corner of King and Bay streets. Now at one time, this was a very bustling area. However, he said now, three years after the lockdowns, offices there are about half occupied. The pre 2020 crowds who ate and shopped in the underground area beneath the towers are far smaller. In fact, he states before the lockdowns, the underground was so overcrowded, if you were an introvert, you were in sheer panic. And the changes in the Toronto financial district, he said really mirror the story of most downtown cores of major cities across not North America, if not the entire industrialized world. Now certainly, when you look at what's going on in San Francisco, Goldwell Banker, the real estate company, recently did a study. San Francisco's office vacancy rate just hit a record high of 29.4%. Can we just say 30%? Software giant Salesforce recently put the last of its San Francisco office space up for sublease. The company is letting 7,000 employees go. This is a third contributing factor to the decline of commercial real estate, and that is a high level of layoffs that are taking place. In fact, in the May newsletter, I look at the number of layoffs just since November of 2022. So we're going to go back and just look at the last six months. In the last six months, Amazon has laid off 27,000 employees. Meta laid off 21,000. Google has laid off 12,000 employees. Microsoft, 10,000 employees, gone. Salesforce, as I just mentioned, 8,000 employees uh, plus more planned. Dell laid off 6,700 employees. Twitter, 80% of their employees, gone. Uber, 30% of employees, gone. Coinbase, 25%. Robinhood, 23%. Snapchat, 20% of their employees, gone. open door. 22% of employees gone. Intel laid off 20% of employees. Glassdoor, 15%. And Zoom, also 15% of employees laid off. Now, if you just look at layoffs in 2023, tech layoffs now in 2023 have now exceeded 170,000 employees laid off. Since January of 2022, we're very closely approaching 350,000 tech employees that have been laid off. Now, if you're wondering how that compares to historic levels of layoffs, this is the biggest wave of layoffs we have seen since 2001, more layoffs than we have seen at any time in the last 22 years. So we're starting to see signs of deflation emerge, and we're starting to see some validation in this forecast of inflation and things that we buy and deflation or falling asset prices and things that we own. If you'd like to learn more, I would invite you to get the April 2023 special report titled Five Forecasts for the Economy and Investing Markets in the report. I interview four guest experts that uh, whose opinions I admire and respect, and I combine uh, those opinions with uh, my own perspectives and give you some strategies to consider moving ahead. To get the report, as well as the bonus information, visit requestyourreport.com. The website, again, is requestyourreport.com. Let me know where to mail the report and the books, and I'll be very glad to do so. That's my program for this week. Hope you got something you can use. I'll be back again next week.